I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to a Christmas edition of the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. Today, snug inside the laboratory building at the RHS Garden, Wisley in Surrey, everyone is in a festive mood. We're talking gifts for gardeners, plus we've got suggestions for fresh air activities to clear the fog of all that feasting. But first, your gardening questions. I'm Tony Dickerson. Earlier today, I got together with some of my colleagues in the RHS advisory team to discuss some of the problems you've sent to us recently. I'm Jenny Bowden. And I'm Lee Hunt. Right, now Christmas is just around the corner and attention's turning to that particular day. But in this festive season, Lee, what do you enjoy about the Christmas period? Actually, I enjoy the preparations as we go up to it. And for me, that does mean about decorating in the house. And I'm always throughout the year trying to collect things which I know I can use. One thing I've got hanging up in the garage at the moment is allium heads. These were plucked off the plants turned upside down before they went to seed and they dry very well you end up with this very star-like formation and something like the purple splendor the holly allium hollandicum they just make drumsticks with the little starry heads but something like schuberto which is much larger about 30 centimeters across make a big starburst often i'll just use a little bit of spray paint something like gold or silver to bring them alive but then just pushed into reeds or natural greenery they really do make a spectacular display my approach to christmas completely different entirely focused on my stomach particularly seasonal vegetables i think it's so important with growing your own to focus on the seasonality rather than buying all these exotics from the supermarkets so i'm thinking particularly of brussels sprouts that classic particularly the F1 hybrids which are so reliable and productive things like trafalgar will be top of my uh, list for the uh, Christmas dinner plate and then of course parsnips very popular gladiator again one of these very good f1 hybrids and finally potatoes nothing to be a roasted maris uh, piper at this time of year a little bit late this year digging them but I did manage it last weekend so hopefully they will be on the plate at Christmas and Jenny what about you I don't have quite the approach of Lee with the Christmas wreath making, but I have done it. And the extent of my Christmas preparations for wreath making this year has been putting some holly aside 
in good time because in years gone by you've planned to make something and the birds have eaten all the berries before you can get to them so the key is to pick the holly uh, in November before it gets far too cold and put it in a shed that the birds can't get into made that mistake as well where a naughty robin or a blackbird has got in there and got there before me uh, so that you've got some material I don't plan very far ahead so for me it's a case of going out uh, foraging whatever is available in the area conifers and uh, pine cones it's very very traditional uh, my wreath making but I usually do try and make one as the winter cold sets in let's start with some questions that remind us of sunnier climes here are a couple of inquiries from a Cypriot family of garden lovers. Sarah, in her email, says, I miss our house and garden in Cyprus, especially the fruit. I want to make domades for a taste of home. Can you recommend a grapevine that I can grow in North London, which is hardy and has leaves that are good for these snacks? I garden on a clay soil. I've heard white grape leaves are better than red. Well, Lee, domades, can you remind us what they are? They're those vine-leaved wrapped parcels, those really tasty little parcels of rice and dill that you get in places like Greece. I think it also goes a bit over into Turkey as well. And you do get them in this country, sometimes in supermarkets, but I think really they are always nicest, fresh, and of course, preferably eaten with sun and wine, I think. Yeah, and regarding the varieties of vines that you could actually use... It doesn't really matter. The most important thing is that they're the youngest leaves. They're the younger leaves. They're nice and soft and pliable and tender. But you're also going to want the vine that you choose to produce nice grapes for you at other times. My favourite one is a white grape and it's called Phoenix, which has quite an aromatic flavour. It's good as a dessert grape or you can make wine with it if you want to. But So it's a nice multi-purpose grape. Now, Sarah also asks about feeding and pruning the grapevine for best results. Lee, what about feeding and pruning? First thing, I mean, she's in North London, so a nice sheltered spot in a, a city, which is going to make it nice and warm. So choose a sunny spot. But then they do need feeding and they do need pruning as well. Pruning, I try and keep it as simple as possible. And I use what they call the GEO system, uh, which is G-U-Y-O-T. It's a complicated name for what I think is probably the simplest system, where basically you develop a little leg about a foot high up to a wire. And then each year you have two central stems that come up that you keep. You cut off everything else and you bend those two stems down right and left so that you've literally just got a T-shape. From those arms on either side, it then grows up entirely vertically and it's on those vertical stems that you get the uh, fruit each year. And at the end of the season, you just cut off those side branches and then tie down two more and remove everything else. So it's quite a simple replacement renewal process. Like a lot of fruits, I think they benefit from that in late winter. So come the end of February, early March, good couple of handfuls of grow more per square yard. Can use organic uh, things like bloodfish and bone as well. It's just about trying to keep it in good general growth. And done at that time is the best. Right. Now, Sarah has some more questions for us. And again, we're getting a little bit uh, exotic here. She asks if uh, we could also suggest a juicy fig for the UK. Uh, she's currently growing a fig, but she talks about simply getting green bullets. Well, Jenny, a fig growing. Well, a very festive fig to be growing at this time of year would be brown turkey. 
brown turkey is a very good variety because it's hardiest in Britain. Obviously, being in central London, Sarah could try other varieties, but brown turkey is a good one to go for. I was also just picking up on the green, green bullets. bullets as well, mm. because with figs, typically you get two crops a year, but only one of those will ripen. So at this time of year, in between the leaf and the stem, you'll find some very immature pea-sized figs. Those were the ones, if they survived the winter, fruit in the middle of the summer. So around July, August time, typically, the ones that come later will often get frosted and fall off. Um, in London, might be very well get two crops, but most of the country will only get the one. So I'm just wondering if she's looking at these green bullets and either it's unfortunate they're just not getting to maturity because the weather gets too cold or they're the very small ones as well. So I'm wondering if she can persevere and do better and get some good figs from what she's got. Mm. Once it makes about five leaves on a shoot in summer, pinching out the tip there again will keep it compact, but also increase the production of those embryo figs. And while brown turkey certainly is probably the fig that most people know and is very successful outdoors, perhaps the other one to try outdoors is Brunswick, a purple flushed green fruit on it. Most of the other figs, perhaps in London, probably succeed outdoors, but elsewhere in the country, perhaps items for a cold greenhouse rather than an exposed site. And Andrew Shear has a question which uh, a lot of gardeners will uh, have concerns about, rabbits. But in particular, they're digging under his polytunnel and into the polytunnel, and there they're enjoying the baby lettuces. Now, with my polytunnel, I've got the plastic sunk deep in a trench and is held taut by the soil so I figure that prevents the the rabbits coming in but I guess here it's a case of a polytunnel where the polythene is actually attached to battens at the base so Jenny if you've got that arrangement which is very convenient for changing the plastic when it wears and so on keeping the rabbits out they're obviously digging underneath so what's the answer here basically fence off either close to the polytunnel or, or, or your boundary but it's not necessary to actually bury the fence you actually you want a fence that's going to be about 1.2 meters uh, so it's about four foot in height but the lower foot of the fence is actually bent out so that you've got a, a foot 12 inches 30 centimeters going out horizontally along the ground so that they can't dig next to it because rabbits don't really have that many brains so if they want to go underneath something they'll go right up to the perpendicular and dig and that normally sorts it out for them they wouldn't think of moving out 12 inches to start digging there so that's really how you do it so you could run the fence around the perimeter of the polytunnel and i guess if rabbits are a problem with lettuce in the polytunnel they're probably a problem with lettuce outside the polytunnel and i think as you suggest sometimes the long-term solution is to totally fence an area rather than just small areas yeah. and uh, for the specifications i recommend the forestry commission website they've got the specifications for rabbit fencing deer fencing and it's very very good because you need a, a certain gauge of wire as well because rabbits will bite through it right our next question is from uh, naomi hammer who lives in cardiff she's been undertaking a loft conversion she has a large metal water tank left over currently lying in the garden and uh, she says I thought it would make an interesting water feature or water garden it's a bit rusty but I'm not sure what it's made of and if it might be toxic to plants or water creatures such as frogs and newts and the like can you advise how I might find out about the metal and how to go constructing and planting one if it's suitable 
I want it to be hedgehog and child friendly as I have three and five year olds and I don't want a drowning hazard. Lee, old water tanks, it sounds might do a job, but is it wise? Which should be a galvanized basically an iron container so it'd be some sort of steel in effect and they put on that as ink coating so it's kind of what we would expect for a watering can in fact kind of one of those old galvanized watering cans so it should be absolutely fine the only thing that's slightly more concerning is the sign of rust because over time if the galvanized coating is coming off the rust will go through and you will get a hole. So I would just prod it a little bit with a screwdriver, not necessarily too hard, but if you just bang it a little a bit, make sure it doesn't go through because the last thing you want to do is all this work making a new water feature and discover that it just rots through in a year or two's time. But obviously that's been a water tank in a house that's been suitable for humans. So it should be absolutely fine for wildlife and creatures as well, because the, the rust itself is not very easy to dissolve into the, the water itself. I perhaps have a couple of concerns. This is a tank that measures uh, 60 centimetres by 100 centimetres, about 60 centimetres high, so two feet high. And I'm just thinking if that sat on the ground, there's not many newts or frogs that are going to get into it. So I think that's one issue. And of course, it's quite a depth of water. I'm sure you could put some sort of wire mesh or whatever over the top. I suppose the other issue here is the rust. I mean, zinc, as I understand it, is a relatively safe substance, but it does contain impurities in the way of cadmium and lead. And uh, with a rusting tank, whether this could... I guess the levels are very low and probably wouldn't pose a problem. But if you were concerned, you'd probably line it with a butyl liner. And I'm again thinking here, well, if you go into that trouble... A tank of that sort, is it really that friendly for wildlife? And Jenny, do you think if you're investing in a butyl liner, is there a better way to create a water feature? I think I'd really want ledges and places to plant things. I mean, potentially you could build it up with bricks or something, but I think I'd rather start from scratch, to be honest, and dig a hole and and then have ledges and use a proper design and then you've got a much wider scope for planting then there's there's a whole range of plants that live in different depths so it's a lot better for wildlife because they can climb in and out so that is the way I would go. Our next question is an email from uh, Lisa Valent and she's in Barking. She got pests in the house. I have a windowsill full of plants in pots, basil, chilli plants and I get lots of tiny little bothersome flies flitting around. They look like sort of fruit flies. What might they be? And are they harmful? And can I get rid of the damn things? Jenny, a few things there. What, what are these creatures? They sound as though they might be something called fungus gnats. Doesn't sound very alluring, does it? Known as skiarid flies. And basically what they're doing is they probably came in on the compost. It's, they're basically breaking down the organic matter, so any woody bits and pieces that are in the compost. Using a houseplant compost, it's purpose-built, that ought to help. Also, you could put up sticky traps, yellow sticky traps that you can buy in the garden centres. They aren't directly harmful to the plants, but they are very, very annoying. Uh, they're not pests of the house plants. They're more a friend of the compost. The the link is with the compost, not the plant, as it were. Also, you could consider putting a layer of grit on the surface of the soil just so that the water is taken away from from the surface. And Lee, any other measures that could be taken against these uh, creatures? 
Well, of course, I love annoying my colleagues in the office, and I had scarred flies flying around their heads. So when I came back after a week's holiday, I knew that something needed to be done when my one colleague had actually bought the biological control, which they mixed up and applied to the compost with a certain amount of success, I have to say. But I think the long-term solution actually was that I did put on a deeper layer of gravel. So at least half an inch thick, I found, was enough to prevent the flies getting access so easily. And that really has reduced the population. Because we we have moved on to more woody-based compost, uh, we do see a little bit more of this. But the gravel in the end, for me, was the winner so far. Onyx? query is from Polly Winter. In her email, she says, my daughter's getting married in June. The colour scheme is maroon, cream and pale blue. I'd love to grow some flowers for table decorations, bouquets and buttonholes. What might be some relatively simple cut flowers I could try? Or should I choose a few and add them to shop bought and hedge my bets? Now, Jenny, as I recall, it wasn't so long ago that you were arranging your own wedding. and Presumably you grew all your own flowers. Oh, Caught me out there. (laughs) Uh, We get asked this a lot. I recommend to people, and indeed I did myself, is that it is rather stressful and that it is often better to uh, just go to the local shops and uh, choose them and say what you want. However, it is possible to grow your own wedding. I didn't, but it has been done and there is a book on it. So you can actually do that. Growing cut flowers, annual cut flowers for June It is quite early in the year to get a really good display, a good choice. So you might really want to consider some of the more perennial plants, uh, which I would really have got in by now, to be honest with you. But you may have some of them in the garden anyway. Things like Astrantia will be flowering in June and they're in the Umbellifer family. So they're related to cow parsleys. And they come in a range of whites and reds and crimson colours. You have roses are just coming into their own. So they're always a good bet, but they will have needed to be established for a while. Among the things that you could grow or sow from scratch, you could be looking at calendulas, which are the pot marigolds, and cornflowers. You may be able to squeeze those in by sowing them early in the year and having them ready. But it It could be a little bit on the stressful side. Perennials-wise, irises will be flowering in June. May to June is absolutely perfect for irises. And sweet williams are a possibility. But again, they need really to have been planted the previous season. So have you got any other ideas, Mm. Lee? I mean, I absolutely agree that June is such a changing month. So you go right from the time where you're pulling up your spring bedding and planting out your summer bedding through to high summer and roses. So it is one of those, if it's at the end of the month, it's so much easier than the beginning of the month. And in fact, if you're going to plan a a wedding at all, I think July through to September in the garden are the easiest months to have flowers because by September you're on to things like dahlias as well. For June, I would go for things like the hardy annuals that you start to sow in, in batches outside. Those are things like Love in a Mist or Nigella, which has all that frothy foliage and you can get whites and blues. So that fits very much with our pale blue uh, scenario for this particular display, but also does provide that frothiness, which is great for an exuberant cottage 
wedding flower style. Things like Cerinthia as well, which has the flashy blue-green foliage and then the, the dark maroony flowers. Again, that could even be started on the windowsill and popped out in mid to late April. It, it's relatively tough, but will start to come to the fore very quickly and actually will go over by midsummer. Mm. So, uh, well, by uh, July anyway. So try that. And then cornflowers, yes. And I would almost say those in fortnightly batches in something like the vegetable garden from kind of late March, early April, when the soil is just beginning to warm up. And you'll know that by the fact that the weeds are beginning to grow. So if the weeds are growing, your seeds should grow. Yes, you can get pale blue, but you can get maroon as well. So yeah, I completely go with your suggestion of cornflowers. Now, our final question for the day is from uh, William Carter, who uh, lives in Grantham. He's just got a new house. The garden is bare earth and a real blank slate. It faces north, measures about 50 feet by 20. And he'd like to establish a, a substantial vegetable area. He'd like to get started over the Christmas period while his enthusiasm uh, is there. It seems a good time to dig. What is the first step I should take to create a kitchen garden? And is it OK to do it in December? And are there any vegetables I can plant in winter to get it going? Hopefully next Christmas we can have homegrown veg on the table. Well, Lee, creating a kitchen garden, is December the time to do it? Well, I think it all depends on your soil, really. The main reason for saying that is that if you have free-draining sandy soil, i.e. it's not waterlogged or saturated, so when you walk across it, you're not getting stilettos of mud building on your boots, then yes, you can get on to it. But if it's wetter, stickier soils, then really you're going to need to leave it because if you walk all over that ground, you're just going to compact it and make it more difficult to work and more difficult to get into a good condition for the plants. So that would be left more into late February, early March. So considering if it might be free draining, then yes, definitely do get on on with it and start to basically do two things, which is remove the weeds and particularly anything with long roots. So whether that's bindweed, things like dandelions, dig those out carefully and get the roots out. It's not really a great time of year for if you did want to consider using weed killer, the ones that would go down to the roots are not going to work very well at this time. So you are on to digging out. William says it faces north, which I guess is not ideal, but so long as there's good light. I mean, north-facing gardens are fine, aren't they, for vegetable growing, so long as there's nothing else impeding the light. So I guess that's okay. But um, he's obviously keen to get started because he asks, is there anything he can actually grow now or plant in the winter? Jenny? Planting directly out, probably garlic. You might get away with broad beans. You're kind of in between seasons with the broad beans because the autumn ones should have gone in in October and the and the spring ones February, I suppose. Mm. So it's not too but broad beans and garlic, but certainly the garlic because um, you know that's either autumn or spring planting. Mm. So those are the two things that spring to mind immediately. I, I must admit, I always used to plant my garlic, you know, in late autumn or whatever, thinking long season. But I must admit, I find very good results from spring planting although we're typically talking about february and uh, similarly with broad beans um so long as the ground's workable they do really need to be got in the ground early because the problem with broad beans they don't like hot weather so often successional sowing perhaps in february can often reap some very good results i think the thing with this as well is that a lot of the crops are either sown or planted so you might either grow the plants indoors things like courgettes and 
peppers, for example, or you buy them in a garden centre, and they're all going out in April through to June. So there is absolutely every possibility to make a really good vegetable garden in one season. It's only really things that are perennial crops, so things like asparagus, that are going to um, need longer time to establish. So there is plenty of chance to get lots and lots of veg off this plot mm. this year even though it, may, it might sound like you can't do it all now you know at christmas time even if you get going in april there's plenty of stuff that will get going well that's our final question for today thanks jenny and lee we're looking forward to more of your answers in the new year You can find links to more information about the topics discussed in our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. That's all from the advice team this year. We'll be answering more of your questions in 2019. RHS members can ask the expert team advice on any gardening problem for free throughout the year. If you're not a member, why not join? Or buy membership for a garden-loving friend. A Christmas gift they can enjoy all year. And while we're on the subject of gifts... What presents are the team looking forward to this Christmas? Hello, I'm Guy Barter. I'm Chief Horticulturist here at the Royal Horticultural Society. Well, I'm fortunate in my family in that very many of my relatives are very keen gardeners. Uh, There's lots of lovely gardening books in the RHS bookshop. We had a discussion of them at Peterborough the other day as a podcast, which is now available to download from our RHS podcast website. And also... There's myself. Now, people say I'm very difficult to buy presents for. I can't imagine why, but I'm absurdly grateful for anything. And this year, it was a real struggle to get posts into the dry ground. So I'm going to ask for a auger, which is where you have a little soil auger that you turn and you can make a nice hole in the ground. Um, they're not very expensive. You, you get them from DIY superstores or online. Uh, there's also my crowbar proved to be inadequate, and I've seen some highly desirable crowbars in DIY superstores. Again, they're just a big spike of steel, really. So I'm definitely going to get one of those. At least I've got something to ask for so people don't complain and I get endless numbers of pullovers. My name's Fiona Davison. I'm the head of libraries and exhibitions. And as a really unsubtle hint to anybody who's listening who might want to give me a Christmas present, I would like a brown turkey fig tree, please. That's what I'd like. We were on holiday in Greece and had the luxury of just heading out into the garden and picking ripe, fresh figs, and there's nothing better. I don't suppose I'll manage. The birds will get there first in Britain, but yeah, a nice brown turkey fig, please, Santa. One of the best gifts that I've ever been given has been a gardening journal some years ago, and it has been one of the most welcome gifts that I've received that's to do with gardening because it does make you record the dates on which you plant things, sow seeds, etc. And then you can compare it year on year and you do tend to forget what you've done in previous years. So to be able to look back and go, ah, yes, tomatoes, I sowed them at this time last year. And then if you've written comments about how that actually went, it's absolutely invaluable. So that is a very, very good present. And you can get purpose-built gardening journals, which makes a really nice present. If I wanted my gardening friends to live another year, I might actually invest for them in a pair of tripod ladders. Uh, now, that this obviously won't fit in a stocking, but 
the eight foot ladders are just like step ladders, but they've got two splayed legs at the front with the steps and then one leg that goes out at the back, which is adjustable. They're so much firmer and safer than the four legged variety. And uh, if you've got to go up and do apple pruning, hedge trimming, all those kind of things, they are a little bit more expensive, but I do think they're a really well worthwhile investment and that they're fairly light to move around. So as long as you've got somewhere to store them, I'd be definitely getting a gardening friend those. Mm. I mean, that's definitely a good present for a keen gardener and they're often the very most difficult people to buy for. That's why I would suggest a pruning saw. Everyone who tends to garden will often have secateurs and so on, but a pruning saw is a really valuable piece of kit and really, most of the time, far more appropriate for pruning and keeping trees and shrubs in shape than secateurs, which tend to make people snip away at little bits of growth that they should be leaving. So uh, a pruning saw would be top of my list. If you would like to find some gardening books for last minute presents, why not check out the selection our experts have chosen this year in our annual books podcast. It's available to listen or download now on our website. Two thousand eighteen has been a hugely exciting year at Wisley, a time of reinvention, reinvigoration, and change. As the year and the development program in the garden nears its close, curator Matthew Pottage reflects on a momentous period of demolition and growth. So, twenty eighteen at Wisley has been an incredibly busy year. We've had some lovely bits of new horticulture opening at Wisley. So back in the spring, we opened our Wisteria Walk, which is about 100 metres long of these arched structures, which create two long, almost tunnel-like structures. And they have pieces of formal utopiary either side them. And there's a lovely broad border either side the path, which gives us space for bedding or, or spring bulbs or autumn bulbs or really whatever we want to do just to add a bit of colour to it. And that's done really well. Most of the wisteria has actually reached the top of the structure now. It needs unwinding. We don't want it to grot itself in later life, so we're going to unwind it because it's twined around the structure and tie it back just to hold itself to it but not twirling around it. And, you know, the next couple of years we'll be getting the formal structure of that sorted, the actual framework of those plants. But that's really lovely. It's been well received by visitors. And then it's been the Exotic Garden's first proper summer. And that has done really well. We obviously had a warm summer in 2018 and the growth in there was phenomenal. And then by the end of the summer, it was looking very jungly and exactly what we wanted. So when people were walking around the paths in there or sitting on the benches, you couldn't effectively see them. It was like they're among a jungle. So that was quite significant for us. And then in the autumn time, late summer, we opened our new heather landscape. So it's the area called Howard's Field, and we have the National Collection of Heathers. And that's 25,000 heather plants went back into that landscape. We swept away the old island beds. It's much more open. We've got some really wacky companion planting in there. Some really fun yuccas and some New Zealand companion plants like ozothamnus. Just to kind of break up all that fluffy, bubbly texture of the heathers. Because just on their own, they can look a bit flat. So we've added those. And then we've started to do our grass garden down there. So the grass borders that used to be on seven acres that moved when the entrance development started. They're now back in the garden. While we've had those new things springing up, 
We've had the new entrance building, the new welcome landscape starting to come together. The building is just about complete. That's having its external fit out. We're due to be opening it next spring and the landscape is going in as we speak. It's a bit muddy out there, but it's working slowly. It would help if it didn't keep raining. It's going to be such a lovely welcome to Wisley. And finally, it's been a nice gardening horticultural thing back to plants again. We've done a lot of bulb planting this autumn. We've planted quite a number of alliums and narcissus and shinodoxa. And then going back to that wisteria walk in a couple of months, we'll be planting quite a lot of gladioli as well for next summer. So May into June, and then again later in the summer with all the gladioli, we're going to see quite a lot of bulb colour, which will be lovely. Whistly creator Matthew Pottage. You can find more information and images of the redevelopments at Whistly through the links on our podcast page. Or why not visit the garden to see the transformations yourself? If you go before the 2nd of January, you can also enjoy the spectacular sculptures of the Glow Illuminations. Glow's also on the RHS Gardens Harlow Car in Yorkshire and Rosemore in Devon. As before, links to the details of these events and others are on our programme page. Well, that's all we have time for today. We'll be back in a week's time with a special edition of this programme, looking back at the highlights of 2018. We wish you a very happy Christmas and horticultural new year. From me, Tony Dickerson, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.